My name is Will Mooney. Um, as Steve said, I am from Nashville. And I grew up in Nashville and lived there, vocationally worked as a therapist, where I've been doing that full-time for the last three years. And before that, I was a pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church and really enjoyed that. And but I've gotten to know Richard because he and I, I'm still really involved in the Presbytery and love opportunities to come preach. And Richard and I are on the shepherding committee together. And so just been sharing a lot of fellowship with him. And when he let me know he was going to be on sabbatical, which I'm so glad for him. Like that is so clutch. Y'all are awesome to like encourage him to go, by the way. So good. Um, he invited me to come. So thank you for having me. Um, my wife and my two girls couldn't come this morning. And I was sad. I wanted you to meet them. But um, that my daughter has Crohn's disease. I don't know if y'all know anything. She's having a flare this weekend. So we were just like, just really sad that they couldn't be here to join us. So um, I wanted to share that. That's part of who I am today. Um, let's, we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. All right, you have the passage up there. Um, so a little context before we read this passage and a question I want us to ask. Um, so this is Paul's letter written. He's actually in jail, um, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. Lots going on in this book. Um, you could probably preach this same passage in probably 10 different ways. And we're going to look at it from the angle of unity, because this is part of what's going on in the church in Philippi. And you see this uh, in, even in chapter 1. Paul is calling this church in Philippi to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's encouraging them over and over in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2 uh, towards unity, towards connection, towards, in his word, and he uses this a bunch, towards being of one mind. So we're going to ask this question, what is it? What does real unity look like in our church? What does it mean to be of one mind? And I thought this would be super important during this season of our world. Um, we are in a very isolated time. And there is, even as a church, right, not being able to meet together for about a year. Um, and even now, it's hard. There's always fear about coming together. And our unity has never been more threatened, in, at least in most of our life. So this is so important to, to look at this question and really wrestle with what, what really brings unity for us as a church. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can open to it or you can read along up here. And this is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that is the name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We always do. We need you now and we ask you to do what your spirit and only your spirit can do to illuminate who you are to us and to our hearts. I ask, Father, that you would take what we know and read about you here from our, in our, from our heads into our hearts. Do that for myself. Do that for my brothers and sisters in here. Would you move us to seeing you and move us towards living as you've called us to live as your people. We love you. For this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, there's a TV show that I imagine everybody's seen. It's been around since the 90s, and it's called Seinfeld. And it's a classic, and it's, it's a pretty ridiculous show. Uh, the show is a show about nothing, and, um, which is actually what makes it funny. And one of the ways, if you ever hear Jerry talk, I, I love behind-the-scenes stuff, so I like hearing Jerry talk about how he writes the show. One of the things that it's a comedic kind of thing that he does is you have a normal person, and then you have a bunch of chaos and like ridiculous people around them, which is what makes humor. And so I'm going to tell you all about a scene um, in this episode called The Opposite Day. And it's a scene where Jerry, being the normal person, and everything else around him is chaotic, and it's Elaine and George in the, uh, the diner. So the scene starts with George, and he's staring off. He's at the beach, and he's just kind of staring off into the sunset. And you can tell he's having one of his, like, just kind of like, I'm going to figure this out mode, right? And so he comes back in, and, he sh- and it's Jerry and Ellen, uh, Elaine sitting there in, in, the, in the diner. And George comes in, and he walks in and plops himself down at the diner and says, Everything in my life is wrong. You can just hear him doing this. Everything I do is wrong. It has all been wrong. Everything I eat, wear, and say is wrong. So they're kind of like, what's George doing? The lady comes up, the uh, waiter, and she comes and she she takes their orders. And the the orders are usually typical for everybody. But it comes to George, and he orders his total opposite of his usual order, which is tuna. Instead, he orders chicken salad and tea. And Elaine looks at him. And says, uh, hey, George, when you ordered, that woman over there just looked at you. And George says to Elaine, Elaine, bald men with no jobs, no money, who live with their parents, don't approach strange women. Jerry says, here's your chance to do the opposite. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. George says, yes, I will do the opposite. I would regret it and just sit here, but I will do it. I will go talk to her. George goes over to this lady sitting at the other booth, walks up to her and says, Excuse me, I couldn't help but notice you were looking in my direction. And her name, she, she looks at she goes, You ordered the same exact lunch as me. He, said, he pauses for a second and goes, My name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. <laughs> and she says, I am Victoria. Why? <laughs> she draws towards him. By doing the exact opposite, George finds connection, finds relationship, finds intimacy. By instead of you know protecting himself and 
doing what he usually does. He chooses to do the opposite and in that find something really different. And this is what Paul's message is to us. Our connection, our being of one mind, our unity, our life together comes by doing the opposite of the world. It comes by giving up self-protection, by giving up our pride and our own self-control, our own just trying to do it our own way. So what does this look like in our lives? I think of this when I was trying to think about myself. What's the opposite? Okay, people all the time ask me, hey, how are you doing? Well, what I typically do, and what maybe you all typically do, is instead of answering honestly, I'm typically start listing off what I've been doing. <laughs> you know, how are you doing? Oh, well, I did this this weekend, I'm doing that, and we're doing this. But instead, what if the opposite was, how are you doing? And we, we started to share, honestly, without self-protection, what, how we're really doing. Like, I'm feeling fear today. I'm feeling kind of lonely in my marriage. I'm feeling a lot of doubt. I feel like God's distant. Or I feel like hurt um, because this is not really going well at work. Um, I'm feeling really angry, and I'm having a hard time with self-control with my kids. Like, what if we were talking like that? What if we gave up self-protection and started doing the opposite? Or maybe a way this could opposite could start looking would be if we started walking into a room, and this is my this is where this convicts me, is instead of trying to look for the person that will make me feel most comfortable in this room by talking to them, find somebody who maybe doesn't look comfortable and go towards them. This is what Paul is calling us to. By giving up self-control and considering others more than ourselves, we have to start doing the opposite. And that's where unity will come. It's not going to come when we start saying the right words, or it's not going to come from agreeing on the same theology or the same mission view, or even getting the right leadership in, or COVID in, right? Unity is not going to come through those different things happening. But the church will be unified when we start giving up self-protection and pride and considering others more than ourselves, being one mind, being looking out for the interests of others. So what, what would the world do with this, right? What is our hope for true unity? The world would say, and this is something that you see all the time, what their prescription for unity is self-expression, self-individualism, right? Just do what makes you happy. And if we all just get to do do you, right, then, then if we all just are okay with everybody doing you, then we'll all be okay and we'll all be together. And we know that doesn't really work. And in fact, it looks probably more like um, what C.S. Lewis describes as hell in The Great Divorce, where everybody's isolated and living alone in their own tribe. That's not going to work. We need something different for unity. And that's where Jesus enters the picture. And that's what we're going to look at. So the two points we're going to look at today for what is what will bring real unity for us is what is the path for unity? Like, what is that path going to look like? And the second is where's that power for real unity and humility come from? So the path and the power. And if you want, if you're an image person, the, the path is going to be a, a downward line, and the power is going to come from an upward gaze. So we're going to look at this and unpack it. So first part, the path for our unity, this downward line. It starts with have this mind that is yours in Christ. What is this path? And we're going to talk about it looking at kind of the second half of this, this section we read, starting in verse 6. This path for unity looks like saying no to ourselves. Looking at Jesus as the model for this, really. Jesus, in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, 
Do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? What is, what is Paul saying here about a thing to be grasped? What he's saying is Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. It's a, it's a mystery to us how that holds together, but that's what's happening. And Jesus did not count his divine rights and his divine beauty something to be taken hold of and held on to tightly, to be grasped, right? I think of taking right here. Jesus said, I'm not going to grasp for my power and for my um, divinity and for my privilege. I'm not going to grasp for that. My equality with God, I'm not going to grasp for it. I'm going to let go of it, and I'm going to surrender something. And this is a huge deal. This is where we get to see the beauty of Jesus. Right? The same one, this is the same God who was on Mount Sinai, and, and his presence was so powerful that the Israelites said, please, Moses, go talk to him, because we can't handle it. Right? He's so great. This is the one that Moses couldn't even look at his face or he would die, right? This is the one who's the Alpha and Omega. This is the one that Colossians says, by him all things are held together. So the one that holds the whole world together, the one, the uncreated being that we just read about in the Nicene Creed, he is the one that gave up his rights and his power and privilege to come and be human. To say no to himself for us. How, does, how do we get our head around this? The image that someone gave me, and I think it's so great, is thinking about something big getting crammed into something small. And we were watching this Animal Planet documentary this weekend on Disney+. Plus. really fun. And uh, we were watching these, these images of these huge, huge elephants. Just think about that. What if you took an elephant, right, they're at least the average nine feet tall, according to Alexa. Nine feet tall. You were cram a nine-foot-tall elephant, and what if you tried to put a nine-foot-tall elephant into a, a minivan? How would that go? I, mean, I don't know if it could happen, right? You try to cram, pick, try to pick their, the, the elephant's head out the sunroof, legs out the side. Like, that just wouldn't work, right? Like, something so great and wondrous and amazing, right? This creature is beautiful crammed into something small that it doesn't fit. That is the image of the incarnation. Jesus, the one who created all things, limited himself into human form. He, he gave up himself that control, whatever that would look like for his divinity power in that moment, to hold on to a grasp of it, so that he could be forever limited to a human body that smells and that bleeds. That's who Jesus is. And he didn't do this one time. This wasn't a, a one-shot thing where he just a 33 years cameo appearance on earth. He did this forever. Jesus gave himself a human body that first Christmas morning forever. He is sitting on the throne right now, interceding for you and me in a human form. We know this because in Acts 1, it says he's going away. And just as you see him going away in this human form, he's going to come again in the same way. So he's still, he's always limited himself that way. So he said no to himself forever for us. He gave up his own rights for you and for me. So what does this mean for us, right? If we're supposed to model this, right, this humility, it means saying no to, our, to ourselves, to our own privileges, to our own powers for the sake of others. It's giving, it's, it's using my power, my influence, 
my money, my time, my family, not for me and my own comfort and safety, but for the benefit and the flourishing of others. It's giving up our rights to our privileges and security and saying no to our pride, to appearing like we got it all together, but being willing to risk to say, I'm willing to be weak in front of you. I'm willing to be needy for, for, because I'm human, right? And so the question for us is, are you willing to be that in this community? Are you willing to say no to yourself, to your own self-protection, to your own pride, so that you can be known and so that you can serve here in your body? And we'll never be united until we begin to do that, to let go of that protection and, and power so that we can come together and serve. But not only did he say no to himself, and not only called, are we called to do it, but he also says yes to something, right? Not no to ourselves, but also yes to something. And this is where verse 7 shows up. Jesus emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he said no to his privileges and yes to being born in the likeness of men. It's humility. And this is a downward line for Jesus. His whole life was a downward line of humility. He was born to a virgin woman. He was born, uh, he learned the trade. He, he, he got tired. He slept. And this is a great quote that a commentator said. He said, the sovereign master of all became the servant of all. The one who really was a somebody put himself in a position to be a nobody, to be the man of sorrows, that no head would have turned if you saw him, and nothing in his form would let you notice him. That's Isaiah 52. And he emptied himself into this thing to become a servant. So what does this mean practically? Like if you think about what he gave up, it's a couple of things. He gave up his favorable relationship to the law to become a curse under the law. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So he who was without sin now is under sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took on our sin. Also, what did he do? He said no to his riches for poverty. Jesus said, no. he, there's, uh, Abraham Kuyper says this, there's no square inch in all of creation in which Jesus doesn't say this is mine. Jesus owns everything, and he gave that up so that he could be poor. If you think about it, if you read the Gospels through this lens of poverty, Jesus was constantly borrowing. He borrowed, and when you start looking at this, it's almost overwhelming. He borrowed a place for his birth, like a, a stable. He borrowed a house to sleep. He borrowed a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally, he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. His whole life was about borrowing because he gave up his riches to become poor. And he did that for you and I. The other thing he gave up, he gave up his glory for earthly shame, right? He gave up his kingly throne to have a towel to wash the feet of his disciples. He gave it all up. He gave, he gave up his glory to be rejected by his own people, and ultimately to be nailed to the cross, to be scorned, naked, and shamed. And this downward line even continues, and this is where uh, verse 8 is really trying to like, uh, like show us this. It says, in being born, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross. Like even his death was so, so humiliating, and like all of it. And if you read the, the story, you just see it gets darker and darker and darker throughout this whole crucifixion. 
this forever moves into more shame and more pain for you and I. And this is the path. This is the path towards humility. By giving up our power and our rights and our influence so that we can say yes to others as Jesus has done for us. Saying no to using our work and influence to get more influence. But saying yes to use it to bless. Saying no to using our wealth to get more comfort, but using it to give it the comfort of others. Saying no to using our class, race, or gender for the rights and privileges, or for, for more favor for ourselves, but more for the rights and privileges of others. Uh, saying no to what we think others need to, yes to what they actually need, right? Listening to them and responding to them. That's something I have to work at. And another part of this is saying yes to the community of God. And I've thought about this a lot during this last year is um, when we kind of got used to being at home and doing church, a start church for me was about coziness, right? Like I at home, I can listen to any sermon I want for everyone. You know, like you just have all this like, it could be a consumerist experience doing church when you're just used to doing it at home. And so this is a season I've had to work at of saying, okay, church, I'm saying no to my comfort because say, I want to say yes to being involved in a community in which I'm called to belong and serve. But that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what unity means. So how do we begin to get this? How do we begin to really move towards this unity together, this, which comes by humility, doing the opposite? Where does the power of this work? Where would this power come from? Right? Because if, if we stop here, this would be a crushing sermon. Y'all would fire me as your as your neighborhood pastor. It would be terrible because you'd just be like, well, thanks for the lesson on going to die. And I don't know how how we're gonna do that. And you're right, because we we cannot do this on our own. We need the spirit to do this work in us. And that's where the first part of Paul's passage comes into play. Because he's wanting us to see and wrestle with the truth of what, who we are and the power that we have. So over COVID, um, we got a dog. Uh, and his name is Charlie, and he's a golden doodle. And he is a terror in the neighborhood. He is crazy. He's so much energy. He's wild. And I have learned a lot about my parenting through Charlie. Because what's happened is it's not through me parenting Charlie. It's through watching my girls parent Charlie. And so much when girls, they say exactly what I say to them. They say it to Charlie. And it sounds a little bit like this. Charlie, put that down or it's going to be a major consequence. <laughs> it sounds like this. Charlie, I need your eyes right now. So I'm learning a ton about my parenting by the way my girls are treating Charlie. And what this shows me is a, is a general principle of who we are as people. We are going to treat others as we've been treated. If we've been loved, we're going to love others. So loved people love, but also hurt people hurt, right? It just keeps going forward. And this is the truth that Paul is trying to remind us. So this verse, verse 1, is saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ and any comfort in love, he's not questioning whether that exists, right? If there's any comfort from being in Christ. He's questioning the believers to ask them, do you know it? Have you experienced that comfort and love? Have you experienced that encouragement in Christ? Because it is not knowledge about Christ that changes us, it's an experience of Jesus himself that will change us and move us. So he's calling us to, to look at our experience. Is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love? He's not doubting whether it's there, but have you met it? And that's the question. And so we're going to look at it in three ways about what this says about an experience of Christ. So Christ is in you, or Christ is for you is the first one, 
Christ is in you and Christ is before you. And I'm not going to spend super long on this. This could be its own sermon, but this is all in this beautiful text. And this is where the power comes from. Right? So the first thing is Christ for you. Do you know, have you experienced Christ for you? Any, have you experienced the comfort of his love? Is that yours? Have you been encouraged by that? And if that's the case, what Paul is calling us to do, and God is through Paul, is to reflect on it, to remember it. By remembering his love, we will move out towards others and serve them. And if that's not our experience, what we need to do is stop and ask ourselves, what is keeping us from experiencing the love of Christ? What are the blocks that are keeping you from knowing his love for you? For me, this has been something I'm, I'm wrestling with right now with the Lord, is what is keeping me from really believing and trusting that you love me? And I've been asking that for him, and he's starting to be more clear to me, and, he's, and what's becoming more clear is that my busyness is actually keeping me from because I'm not willing to slow down. And so I will, I know that's part of what keeps me from being and experiencing his love, because this is what Martin Luther says, the sweetness of the gospel lies mostly in the pronoun, as me, my, and I, right? Like we, the sweetness of Christ's love for us comes in like personalized to who we are. And how will this power change us, right, to be in unity together? We won't be demanding and trying to perform for love, right, for other people in the church. We won't be trying to grasp uh, tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm loved. Like working at it or pickpocketing or doing anything to try to get that. We're going to be knowing and grounded in his love so that we can give it. We'll be like a cup overflowing because we know this love. So that's Christ for you, right? And then verse 1 also says, is if there is any participation in the Spirit, right? This mind that is yours in Christ, we have the Spirit. So Christ has not only given himself for us, but he's put himself in you and in me. And this power of being in Christ is not just a small thing. This is everything. Because we are in Christ, we have his spirit. The same one who empowered Jesus to be faithful, to say no to himself in the desert, right? 40 days, no eating. And that same spirit that empowered him is the same spirit that lives in you today and empowers you to wake up and go to work and serve your family and your friends. Spirit lives in you, and he will give you that power, and he will strengthen you to do that. And this, I think in our denomination, just for me, as having grown up in the PCA church, I think we miss out on the spirit a lot. Um, I think we, I think it's just, some, at least it was not emphasized in my, my growing up experience of the church, and it is huge. And I felt, started thinking about this, and Jesus, when he left the disciples, he tell, he's telling them he's going to leave in John 14, 16. He's talking about his departure from them. They get, they get down, right? You can see it in the Gospels. And Jesus says to him, he's like, hey, don't worry. It's better for me, for you, that I leave. Why would he say that? He's saying it's better that I leave. The reason why, because it's better for you that I leave because you will have my spirit. I get jealous of the disciples. They had Jesus in the flesh. I think that's pretty huge. But somehow I've started to doubt that it's better, like, that I have the Spirit. And that's a huge deal. So we have the Spirit, and it is going to empower us. What does this mean? A moment of vulnerability for me around this. This weekend has been super tough in my family. Wait, uh, my daughter has been 
Nine will eat for three days and she's hurting and bleeding internally with her Crohn's and we're just like, oh, what do we do? We gotta go to the hospital. What? Our power went out last night, so we were like, it was just utter chaos. We were plugging in a, <laughs> a generator at midnight, like trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And, and then I was leaving and I've been just so anxious about my family this weekend and what's gonna happen. And so uh, I've been asking the Lord for peace to trust him so that I can keep serving my wife, keep serving my kids. And um, the Spirit has been reminding me of this image. And it's so cool that he can use our imagination uh, in a way that's good, rather than how I typically want to use it for evil, right? He started using my imagination to seeing him there with my wife, with my daughter, with my sick daughter, comforting them, and then being here with me. And that image gives me so much peace. And that is true. Right? His presence, his spirit is with them today and will always be there and with me. So I can find peace and strength to go out and trust that he's going to take care of us. Just as he's done it for years and will always continue. So the spirit can do that. The spirit can remind you and testify with your spirit that you're God's son and guide you in all truth. That's what his voice does. That's what his spirit does. Lastly, Christ before you. So Paul this, this passage, the reason why I said it can be preached like 10 different ways is because it usually, you kind of miss these first five verses and sit in the 6 through 11, which is this beautiful, it's called like this Christ hymn. Because Paul just starts getting overwhelmed with the beauty of Jesus, right? It turns into poetry. And uh, John Piper, in talking about this passage, he says, how do you teach this passage to help others? How do, how do we begin to teach humility from this passage? And he says, you don't need a fancy argument to help us change. We just need to see how Paul uses God talking. And what he means is the goal to, to getting us to think less of ourselves and more about serving others and not through trying to do it, it's actually going to come by seeing the glory and the beauty of Christ. Right? By taking our eyes off ourselves and by seeing his beauty and glory. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to allure us right, to seeing Christ. And by doing that, we don't have to work at trying to trying to say no. It's, like, it's just going to come naturally. I'm just going to see him and want to want to worship him. It's because humility is not thinking less of myself. It's just thinking less about myself, right? Um, and it, it's going to happen by focusing on his glory. And that's what we see in verse nine, right? Starting with the rest of it, we see his glory, and it says this: like God has exalted him and bestowed. I'm just going to read it because it's awesome. Uh, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And the name means something about who Jesus is. So that the name of Jesus, Jesus' name is he who saves. Jesus is Lord. So this, this Lord, this name of being Lord, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So just imagine this image, right? When, when, the, when Jesus returns, his name will be proclaimed, and every single knee that's ever been made on earth, under the earth, above the earth, everything is going to bow. And then also, every tongue is going to confess and speak that Jesus Christ is Lord. The image that comes up for me is Handel's Messiah, right? Everybody that's ever existed for all time, past, present, future, is going to be seeing the Messiah. It's going to be incredible. I can't even get my mind around it. And that, that image is what he wants us to see reflect on that, to meditate on that. And by doing that, 
we won't have to worry about trying to say no to ourselves. It'll just start coming. We'll start seeing Jesus, knowing that he's going to take care of us, and we can just glorify him. So if this is something you're wrestling with, right, if you're aware of your own isolation, your own pride, your own struggles towards self-protection, start asking the Lord to show you his glory. Start meditating on, on who he is. Just start singing worship songs. Just start listening to worship music. Start uh, inviting others to help you meditate on the beauty of Christ. And by doing this, you'll be naturally drawn towards him. The way I think of this is I work with couples in uh, counseling practice, and I tell them a lot when, we're, when they're stuck. I was like, hey, a lot of times, not a lot of times, marriage doesn't work if you make it all about the other. If you're always trying to see the other and fix the other and like almost like, you know, the excitement of the early relationship where it's all about you, right? If we keep doing this, eventually we'll miss each other, you know, or we'll get enmeshed, which is ooey, right? So like what we really need, what creates true intimacy is if we're focused on the same beauty and goal and mission together. And that creates connection and intimacy. And if that's what we start doing as a church, if our focus is on the mission and the person of Jesus, unity will just be the fruit of it. And we'll come out of that. And this will bring rest to our hearts. And so we're going to move into doing that together. We're going we're gonna to practice seeing Christ for us, in experiencing him in us and before us by moving towards the supper today, which is great. We get to do this this morning as we take of these elements. Um, and so I'm going to start sharing what that is. And so I know you guys do this, I think, once a month. And um, this is where we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. And before we do this, I'm, uh, if you can bring up that Hebrews 4 passage, and I'm just going to pray, um, just before we transition to the table, I think this still, that's just where it's still a theme here. Let's pray together. Father, this is uh, a passage that's beautiful, and we could spend our whole lives meditating on it and seeing you more. And I, I want to ask, Father, that you would take your word here and make it beautiful to our hearts. Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this morning, would you show them your glory? And Lord, through that, would the fruit of humility and unity come out of us? Lord, give us the discipline through your spirit to, to say no to ourselves, but also just to keep pointing our eyes back towards you as the one who gave yourself for us, that lives in us, and that constantly we see your beauty around us. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Can I worship or be good at the table? Go ahead. So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this is a beautiful passage, and it, it's, I'm going to read it for us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, we get to come with boldness to this table. Because we have a, a God who sits on this throne and has so much grace for you. And so I would invite you to come and to nourish your hearts by faith in the elements that we're going to take together. And remember that Christ
Christ gave himself for you, right? Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. And also, if this is not your heart, if you're not looking to Christ for your salvation, for your hope, for your life, I invite you just to sit right where you're sitting, just reflect on what what we've read today in the person of Christ. And I want to invite you to think, too, about where is it that I'm finding life? Right? Where, where am I looking to for hope, for truth? And then, is that working for me? Because I would venture to say that just like the disciples who looked at Jesus and said, hey, where else were you going to go? You're the only one that offers the word of life. That's true. And if you're somebody that has these questions, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I know your elders would love to talk to you. Because this is a safe place for questions, to wrestle with your doubts, and to be known. So we're going to move towards the table. And